the word of God. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus is speaking of his death. He also told them a parable, saying, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good enough. Heavenly Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I ask, O God, that you would convict our hearts uh, of the word and of your truth, and that you would convince us of it, that we would be transformed into the likeness and image of your Son, We would leave this place different than how we came in. Amen. Well, I have an illustration this morning. It's a little uh, unorthodox, uh, but I have an illustration, a video this morning that I want to use to kind of launch us into our topic this morning. Our topic is uh, the challenge of Jesus and how Jesus challenges traditional religion. And so um, maybe you can dim this light or I don't know what you have to do before you play it. Because of our tradition, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work. How to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. All right, thank you. Uh, You can put the lights back on. Uh, By the way, that's one of my favorite movies. It's Fiddler on the Roof. And I probably watched that movie about 20 or 30 times. My mother's Jewish, so I grew up with a lot of uh, sayings and phrases and isms from the Jewish community. But um, one of the things that uh, uh, that little clip demonstrates is that what Jesus is running headlong into as his ministry starts to pick up speed is an entrenched religious tradition uh, among the Jews that he's ministering to in Israel. 
And that's where we find our text this morning, is Jesus uh, essentially colliding with these entrenched traditions of the Pharisees. And we remember that, you know, everywhere that Jesus went, he drew large crowds and onlookers and gawkers, you know, because of how spectacular the things he was doing were. And, um, and he broke with a lot of the traditions, and it seemed like Jesus was this nonconformist. Here's this teacher from Nazareth who's making headlines, and he's forgiving people's sins. And I want to tell you something, that just didn't happen. The temple system and its sacrificial apparatus had a monopoly on forgiveness. And before the temple, it was a tabernacle. So people didn't just go around saying, hey, I just want you to know you're forgiven. God's forgiven you. It didn't work like that. We take that for granted because, well, we're Christians. And even if you're not a Christian, the language of Jesus forgiving people um, is familiar to us. But in the first century, you didn't do that. That was unheard of, that someone, apart from the temple system, is going around forgiving sins. And so Jesus appears to be like this nonconformist, but it's not because he doesn't like the temple. And it's not because the apparatus and religious structure that existed was somehow unbiblical or wrong. It's just that it all pointed to something greater than itself, and what it pointed to is Jesus. And so when Jesus bucks the system of tradition and religious structure, it's not because he doesn't like it, but it's because he, in his person, is greater than it. He is greater than the traditions. All of the symbolism and rituals are pointing to him. And so there's this symposium of religious bigwigs, There are Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, and all of these people have come out to investigate what's going on. Who is this guy going around saying your sins are forgiven? And here's what they say. Remember last week, there was the banquet that Levi threw, and they say to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And they're essentially saying, Your disciples are feasting when they're supposed to be fasting. Now, you might be wondering who the they is, right? Because it's not exactly the Pharisees, because someone is talking about the Pharisees and their disciples, but I mentioned it a moment ago. It's obviously some kind of uh, collection of important religious thinkers, a symposium, if you will, the big wigs, the big thinkers, um, people who uh, are examining Jesus' ministry. And just so you know, fasting was a normal part of Jewish religious life. Law of Moses said that you were to fast on the the Day of Atonement, but religious Jews fasted, especially Pharisees, twice during the week. Remember in Luke 18, Jesus gives the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. But fasting is something you do to protest when things are not right. You don't fast because things are good. You fast because things are not good. Think of a hunger strike, right? 
right? If someone, uh, you know, you've, different groups protesting or prisoners in a prison who are being mistreated or whatever it is, they go on a hunger strike, which is essentially a fast, to protest conditions to say this is not the way things are supposed to be. And so the habit in the Jewish religious community of fasting is essentially because, one, they're waiting on their Messiah. Two, they're under oppression and occupation by the Romans. And then three, um, they fast um, because of their sin. And so there is a dissatisfaction that fasting represents. There is a longing forward to a time when God would set the world to rights. We fast, we look forward to the Messiah coming to deliver us from our sin and oppression, and we are looking forward to a time when God is going to set the world to rights. The prophet Zechariah speaks of a time of the renewing presence of God among his people Israel, when he reaffirms the covenant promises and makes good on his promises to bless all of the nations through Israel. Now, as we move through Luke, you may may remember the miracles that we've seen so far. Jesus casts out the demon from the man in the synagogue. He heals Simon's mother-in-law from a deadly fever to the point where she just gets up and, and rises up, doesn't even need any recovery time, you know? She's on her deathbed. Jesus heals her. She gets up and starts ministering to the people in the house. There was the miracle of the great catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee, even though there wasn't a scant of of fish in the water at all. Jesus didn't have any type of sonar system. Well, he miraculously, you know, fills the nets with all of these fish, so much so that these boats begin to sink. He cures a leper, even telling him to go and show himself to the priests in the temple as a proof, and the leper, you know, goes, you know, um, to the temple and, and is cleansed to demonstrate that his leprosy is gone. Jesus cures a paralyzed man. Um, and he goes home skipping for joy, praising God. Why? Because he's been forgiven of his sins. And then there's this call of Levi, the tax collector, the extortioner, as tax collectors were viewed, And he's been forgiven. And through all of these events, through all of these miracles, one by one, what should be evident to everyone witnessing these events is who Jesus is. But that's not the case. And look at what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? In verse 35, he says, The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And the point is, the response of these theological bigwigs, the response of the Pharisees and religious leader to Jesus' activity and miracles is completely inappropriate. It's a completely inappropriate response. I love weddings because uh, they're a time of so much, you know, celebration. Uh, Maribel and I uh, were just teenagers coming to know the Lord when we were married. And 
it was on a weekday, we packed up and we headed off to Vegas because it was cheap. So I was a teenager and Vegas was cheap and we wanted to be married and we were just coming to know the Lord and the pastor said, you know, y'all are living in sin. <laughs> and we said, we want to be right in God's sight. And so uh, Maribel made a few phone calls. This is back in 1991. And uh, she said, you know, ask your, ask your boss for the day off and let's all shoot up, you know, to Vegas. And um, that doesn't sound very holy and religious, but it was just practical for us. And so she borrowed a wedding dress from a friend, and I rented a tuxedo. And I don't know why, but I got the kind with the tails. I mean, I looked like a maitre d' at a French restaurant. Or a little junior Liberace. I don't know what I was thinking, but I just thought, when I thought tuxedo, I thought the tails. I mean, I, you know, sat down and, you know, play the piano or something. It was bizarre, but I mean, that's, I was just a kid. We were, I was 17. And, um, and, um. We got married at the Chapel of Love, and we spent the night in a little motel room between two casinos. We didn't stay in a hotel room. We stayed in a motel room, and get this, we, had, we stayed in the room with 10 other relatives. I mean, it was her brother and sister sleeping on the floor next to our bed and her mother and stepfather in the next bed. And then there were other people. I mean, that's just how it was. I mean, everyone came, her parents, my parents, her siblings, my siblings. Uh, and um, the reception consisted of a self-serve buffet counter at the Riviera Casino. You know, there were senior citizens, you know, smoking with their cups of coins next to us, you know, as I sat down with a tuxedo and tails to, like, you know, mashed potatoes and, you know, chicken fried steak. But it was all a very joyous occasion. And if someone showed up in all black with a black veil, weeping and mourning and crying, we would have kicked them out of the service. We would have kicked them out of our festivities because as humble and meager as our wedding was, it was a time of celebration. And so what Jesus is saying is, this is a time to celebrate, not mourn. Because whether you recognize it or not, he tells the religious leaders, the bridegroom is here. The long-awaited redeemer of Israel, spoken of by the prophets, is here. Isaiah, the Old Testament spoke of God as a groom, redeeming and rescuing his bride, Israel. Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines, a day of great celebration. Isaiah 54, For your maker is your husband, The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. For the God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife who's been deserted. And Jesus is saying, all of the evidence is here that I'm the bridegroom. The sick are healed, the dead are raised, the the demon-possessed are delivered. And what he's telling them is, All the proof is here that that the bridegroom, the groom, is here. This is not a time of fasting, it's a time of feasting. And the disciples are celebrating because they recognize that this time spoken of by the prophets is fulfilled, right? The time is fulfilled. 
Israel's long exile spiritually is over. The groom has come to marry his wife. The symbol of feasting instead of fasting is this celebration that in Jesus, Israel's hope of deliverance was coming to pass. Humanity's hope of deliverance is coming to pass. And see, what happened was the Pharisees had absolutized their religion, their traditions, and they neglected the fact that all of their traditions and their their religion pointed to something other than itself. And the point is for us is if we fail to recognize who Jesus is, we always fail at religion. I said last week, there's nothing wrong with religion. I'm not, I'm not on this bandwagon, you know, religion is bad. The wrong kind of religion is bad. And what Jesus is challenging is empty religion. He's challenging man-made religion, and he's also arguing and making the point that something new has broken into the world. Something powerful, something magnificent. And to take it a step further, what the world finds attractive about Christianity isn't our religion per se. We have many beautiful religious traditions, right? You know, if 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 you get married or if there's a funeral, you don't expect someone to do a comedy routine. You expect there to be kind of a high ceremony because it ought to feel important and somber and transcendent. But what, what the world finds beautiful about Christianity is the beauty of Jesus. And so when we fail to point the world beyond our traditions or demonstrate that all of our rituals and traditions and all those things are pointing to Jesus, we fail to show them the beauty of what we believe. Because everything we do points to Jesus Jesus is the focal point of history. He is the focal point of all creation. And to illustrate the uniqueness of his message, look what he says in verse 36. I don't know if it's on the screen, yeah. Verse 36, maybe the next slide. He gives this parable. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, I don't know how many of you remember, when I was a kid, you know, I played so hard in my jeans I had holes, and, you know, there were just threads, you know, keeping the hole in my kneecaps, you know, know, keeping my knees from busting through, and, of course, at some point, because they're your favorite jeans, mom goes to the store, and she gets a little denim patch and irons it on, but uh, maybe you've never experienced that, you know, Uh, but that was what it was like for me, and and what Jesus is saying is, you know, imagine you take... A beautiful garment, a Brooks Brothers or Armani suit, and you just cut a huge piece right off of the back of the coat, and you put it on an old, beat-up garment. And what Jesus is saying, you'll destroy the new garment, and when it shrinks, you'll tear the old garment even worse. You'll, you'll ruin, you ruin both. And the imagery in this saying looks at the fact that what Jesus brings is so new It cannot simply be combined with the old. To do so would be to destroy the new 
and to put something with the old that doesn't fit. The message of the gospel and the existing religious system that Jesus is speaking into don't just blend together harmoniously. There is something new happening. And the challenge of Jesus for the Pharisees, for the religious bigwigs, and for us requires a radical rethink of everything we know about God. It was, it was true for the Pharisees and it's true for us. And it wasn't because the Old Testament was invalid. So don't hear me saying that everything in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant was bad to be flushed down the drain. It wasn't that, but it was because all of the promises, all of the types and shadows would now be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which meant that everything was about to change. And I want to say this, for those of us that think we know Jesus, and I'm not saying there are people who don't really know Jesus in here, but I don't know all of your hearts. And I want to say this, what it means to know Christ means that everything in your life changes. It may not happen overnight, but truly knowing Jesus means that everything changes. You don't just add Jesus as an ingredient into the mix and it just kind of sweetens everything. Knowing Jesus transforms who we are fundamentally as human beings. And it fundamentally transforms what we know about ourselves and the world we live in and our surroundings. Jesus can't simply be stitched into the Old Testament patterns and practice. And so here's the second image he gives in verse 37. He says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. You may be familiar with this imagery, but wineskins were bags of leather that were used for storing wine in New Testament times. Actually, wineskins were made of the skin of the carcass of a goat. They would cut off the hooves and the head, and they would sew those parts of the body up, and it would be, they would tan the leather, and they would sew all the seams, and they would pour wine in there, and they would have a rope. And so you could, you could have a bag, a wineskin, it was a literal skin of an animal, filled with wine. And as that wine fermented, in the Old Testament, they didn't have bottles, like we think today, right? You know, there's this beautiful bottle of wine, you know, with dust on it, you know, and it's, you know, and it's, you know, from like 1960 or something that's worth, you know, $5,000. Well, in those days, wine was fermented in actual animal skins. And what Jesus is saying is that uh, putting new unfermented wine in wineskins, which had already been stretched out, would result in the bursting of wineskins. Again, here's this imagery saying you can't just blend this new with the old. And the point he's making is the scaffolding of the Old Testament religious structures, which really served the covenant community well for centuries, is now redundant. The temple is passing away because there is a new temple, Jesus. Remember Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up again? Speaking that he's the new temple. The sacrificial system is about to be done away with because Jesus 
as the eternal high priest, is about to make a sacrifice once for all, forever. His message doesn't just fit into the old patterns because he is fulfilling what was prophesied. He's fulfilling those types and those shadows. The written law is now replaced with the law being written on our hearts. Everything written, when you get to the end of the book of Luke, it says that everything written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms spoke of Jesus and Jesus fulfills it. There is a new covenant, a new religion, new traditions, a new community, and a new creation. Essentially the end of man-made religion. And then finally, the final image. In verse 39, he says, And no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. And what Jesus is doing is just making a human observation here. And what he's saying is, I understand your trepidation because people don't want new wine after they've had the good aged stuff. I get it. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's recognizing the difficulty that the theological bigwigs are having with him because they're used to the old wine. But you know, all old wine was new at some time. And what Jesus is introducing is, a, is new wine. If you're used to the old stuff, you're not going to like the new. The Pharisees had the scaffold of old religion, but it blinded them from seeing God's act of renewal in Jesus. There are things that make us feel right in the sight of God. Things we do that make us feel religious. Things we do that help us to feel like we measure up. But sometimes they blind us from truly seeing Jesus. When Martin Luther, the Roman Catholic priest, was reading the New Testament, he saw that salvation and the new covenant and new creation consisted not in all of the different elements and rituals of the church, but in the person of Jesus. What he recognized is that Jesus alone was enough. And that's hard for us to recognize sometimes, that Jesus is enough. You know? But that's exactly what the gospel is. That new life, new creation, the new covenant, redemption is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Let's pray.